You're listening to the St John's Diamond Creek Podcast. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. Today's reading is from the book of Job, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on, our, on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. 
May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why are we surrounded by so much pain and suffering? Why do we experience so much pain and suffering in our own lives? These are big questions and they're not merely theoretical questions. Many of you are struggling with these realities in your own lives right now. The pain of loss as we grieve for friends and family who have died, sickness and frailty personally, or in close family members, the ongoing impact of abuse and trauma, relational breakdown and separation. These are real issues with real pain and real suffering. And for Christians, these are more complicated because we believe in a God who is both good and powerful. And so shouldn't he want to prevent these painful things happening? And isn't he able to stop these things happening. And it's further complicated by the fact that often there seems to be no rhyme or reason to suffering. It's not like bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. No, good and godly people, people who dedicate their whole lives to God and to the sacrificial service of others, suffer terrible tragedies, pain and loss. These are big and difficult questions, and unfortunately there's not a simple solution that ties everything up into a neat package. I wish there was, but this is a much more complex problem that just isn't neatly solved. However, at the same time, God has not left us completely devoid of answers to these questions. In the Bible, these very issues are faced honestly and grappled with openly. And one of the key places that this happens is the book of Job. Job's a big book, 42 chapters long, 
and we're not going to cover it all in just five talks, but I'm hoping that what we do gives you a taste for Job and that you might read through the entire book yourself. The group Backyard Bard has produced a video read-through of the whole book uh, featuring Renee McKenzie as one of the actors, and that also is a good way to wrestle with this book. Uh, there are links to this uh, in our weekly email. Today we're looking at the first two chapters of Job, which set the scene for the rest of the book and introduce some key points for us as we grapple with the issue of suffering. The passage is in five scenes, and these scenes shift constantly between earth and heaven. So verses 1 to 5 start on earth, where we're introduced to Job. He's an impressive guy. He has an impressive family, seven sons and three daughters. His children seem to get on well with each other. They're constantly holding parties for each other. What's more, Job is the model of the godly parent. He gets up early in the morning to offer sacrifices on their behalf, just in case they've committed some hidden sin by cursing God in their hearts. So the images of a faithful parent getting up before the sun rises in order to pray for his kids. Job also has impressive business ventures. That's in verse 3. He has pastoral interests, 7,000 sheep. He has merchant interests, 3,000 camels and 500 donkeys for transporting his goods. He has agricultural interests, 500 yoke of oxen so that he can plough his fields. He's got a large staff, numerous servants driving his business and maintaining his house. Right? If the ancient Near East had a Forbes top 100 wealthiest people, then he'd probably be at the top of the list. As it says in verse 3, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. But the most impressive thing about Job is not his family and his business ventures, but his character. Have a look at the fourfold description given of him in verse 1. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Now, to be blameless doesn't mean that he was perfect. But the focus is that he's a man of integrity. He's at peace with God and with the world. To be upright is to be honest, true, and faithful. Uh, and the last two descriptions show that Job is also the model of a wise person. He's described as someone who fears God. That is, he gives God due reverence. He treats God as God and seeks to be obedient to him. And because he fears God, he also shuns evil. He, he turns away from it. He wants nothing to do with it. So that's Job, blameless and upright, fearing God, shunning evil. It's a key description because it's repeated twice more in these two chapters. In verse 1, the narrator describes Job in this way. But in chapter 1, verse 8, and then again in chapter 2, verse 3, God himself uses these exact same terms to describe Job. So we the readers are supposed to know in no uncertain terms that Job is good and he's a godly man. That's critical for what is going to follow because that very fact will be called into question by Job's friends due to the circumstances that he undergoes. But we're being told quite clearly that he's been living a thoroughly good life. 
In verses 6 to 12, the scene shifts from earth to heaven as the angels come and present themselves before God. And among these angels is Satan. The name Satan means adversary or accuser. Right? He opposes God and he brings accusations against humans. And we see both of these aspects of his character in what follows. God asks Satan where he's been, and Satan's evasive, I think, in his answer. He's a, he's a bit like a sullen teenager. How's your day been? Fine. What have you been doing? Not much. Right, God asks Satan, where have you come from? Just roaming the earth. Now, later in the Bible, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we're told your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, which suggests something more intentional and malicious than just aimless roaming here and there. So God points to someone that Satan cannot possibly accuse. He draws attention to my servant Job. And he repeats the fourfold positive description of Job that we've seen. But rather than agreeing with God and acknowledging that Job is indeed a good man, in verse 9, Satan basically says to God, Job only follows you for what he can get out of you. You've given him a good life. You've put a protective hedge around him. He doesn't love you for who you are, God but just for what he can get out of you. If you take the good things away from him, he'll drop you like a brick. In fact, he'll probably even curse you to your face. And how does God respond? I find verse 12 the most difficult verse in the entire passage. God gives Satan permission to take away all that Job has. The only limitation is that Satan cannot touch Job's person. It's clear in all of this that that God is in charge. Satan cannot act independently of God. He cannot do things without God allowing him some license to act. But that leaves us with a difficulty. Why is it that, that God gives such terrible permissions to Satan here? In verses 13 to 22, we see the terrible outcomes of these permissions. Again, the scene shifts and we're now back on earth rather than in heaven. And we see poor Job hit with wave after wave of tragedy. They say that bad things come in threes. Well, here we have it in fours and it builds to a terrible climax. Maybe you felt like this yourself where bad thing after bad thing keeps on happening in in a non-stop succession. Firstly, Job's donkeys and oxen are stolen and the servants slaughtered. Then his sheep and the servants with them are destroyed by fire of God from heaven, which is possibly a reference to to lightning. Then his camels are captured and all the servants with them are killed. And finally, the climactic tragedy, the worst of all, his sons and daughters who have been feasting together when a huge wind strikes the house and it collapses, killing everyone inside. Four tragic events. And how does Job respond to all this? Verse 20. He tears his robe and he shaves his head. 
acts of deep grief and mourning. And then he falls on the ground and he worships God. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Far from the response that Satan predicted, that Job would curse God to his face, instead Job falls flat on the ground and acknowledges that God is God and that everything he has comes from God in the first place. Instead of cursing God, he says, may the name of the Lord be praised, or in other versions, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's an incredible act of faith in the face of overwhelming tragedy. And as the narrator summarises in verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Khalil and Janet are a couple that I know from a previous church. They're both people of deep faith who have served God for many, many years, including in tough and dangerous situations overseas. Tragically, they lost their son in a car accident, a sudden tragic loss which impacted them both very deeply. And they told me that after their son died, they'd lie in bed every night just weeping. And amidst their tears, they would say these words from Job. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. They adopted Job's very language as they wrestled and struggled in their own grief. Though they told me also that they regularly quoted another of Job's phrases from later in this book. Cursed is the day of my birth. It's only through tears that we can really speak these words. The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We must never do it flippantly or lightly. This is not look on the sunny side, you know, let's be optimistic sort of faith. It's a cling on to God in the the midst of deep pain faith trusting in his faithfulness, trusting in his goodness, regardless of the painful reality of the present. I was on a church camp where we sang the song, uh, Blessed Be Your Name, the song by Matt and Beth Redman, uh, which we often sing at our church, Uh, a song which is based on these very words and this passage here from Job. Uh, The refrain goes, you give and take away, you give and take away, my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Uh, The band was really boppy and upbeat as we sang those words together. But standing a few rows in front of me, a couple was clinging to each other, weeping. I'd recently taken the funeral for their nine-year-old daughter. There's nothing wrong with the song. It speaks real truth, real biblical truth. But we should always speak and sing these truths with an awareness of the reality of the pain around us. And often only weeping 
as we say these words. Well, chapter 2 then shifts again from earth back to heaven. And again, Satan comes before God. God asks him again where Satan's been and he gets the same answer. And again, God draws attention to his servant, Job. He repeats that fourfold positive assessment of Job, but he adds in chapter 2, verse 3, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him without any reason. God's laying down the challenge to Satan. He's saying, you were wrong, Satan. Job has maintained his integrity despite what he's suffered. But do you think Satan will admit that he's wrong? He fairly spits out his next words in verse 4. Skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. Look, God, he's only suffered a flesh wound. It's only skin deep. People are prepared to give up anything in order to save themselves. But if you were to touch him, then he would certainly abandon you and curse you. And again, God gives Satan these terrible permissions. Very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. Again, there's a limitation. Job can't be killed, but Satan's given a free hand beyond this. Verses 7 to 10 shift back again to earth, and now we see poor Job afflicted with terrible sores from his head all the way down to his feet. And even Job's wife suggests that Job should just give it up. Curse God and die, she says. But Job will have nothing of it. He remains faithful to God. We receive the good things that God gives us, shouldn't we also receive the bad? And again, we get the positive assessment in verse 10 that in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So at the end of this section, we see that despite what Job has suffered, he refuses to curse God. Again, this doesn't mean that the problem of Job's suffering is easily fixed or has a glib solution. Uh, we're about to see 30 chapters following this where Job wrestles with God and he wrestles with his friends about why he's experiencing all this pain. We haven't even begun yet. And yet even in these chapters, we've seen some pointers to help us as we wrestle with our own pain and suffering. Firstly, we need to affirm that bad things do happen to good people. That's so clear from this chapter, right? Job is a godly man, and yet he suffers serious pain and tragedy. And this is a truth that we need to hear loud and clear, right? When we are suffering pain and heartache, we're so often tempted to question whether we've done something wrong, whether we've brought this upon ourselves. Sometimes that is the case. Sometimes our bad choices can lead to painful outcomes. But that's not always the case. Bad things 
do happen to good people. And it's simplistic to assert that when we're suffering or when other people are suffering, it's a result of their bad actions. Faye is another lady of deep faith that I know. Uh, she lost her husband in a tragic accident when her children were teenagers. And then years later, her adult daughter, Angela, died from a broken arm that became infected. At Angela's funeral, Faye said, I know from the book of Job that bad things do happen to good people. We don't understand why this has happened, but we're continuing to trust God and to look to him in the midst of these tragic circumstances. It was a profound testimony of faith and it was a direct application of the teaching of the book of Job. Secondly, we see in this chapter that Satan is real and a malevolent influence. He's an adversary and an accuser. And as such, he loves nothing more than to oppose God and to accuse people before God and before themselves. He's destructive and a powerful influence in the world and we need to take him seriously. As Western Christians, we tend to ignore or eliminate the reality of spiritual evil, right? We talk about natural disasters. We speak about human evil, both of which are evident in this passage in what happens to Job. But the Bible also speaks openly about spiritual evil powers. And that needs to be included in our picture, our mental framework of suffering and evil. But at the same time as acknowledging the reality of Satan, we must hold that God is absolutely sovereign. He is the one who is in control. Satan is not an equal power. He can't act independently of him. Uh, we don't have a dualistic view as Christians, you know, God and Satan as equal powers. And that's a really critical thing in the area of suffering. I remember reading an article uh, in The Age following uh, the 2004 tsunami, and the author, who believed in God, argued that there are just some things that are out of God's control. His way of dealing with the tragedy that he saw around him was to say that God is powerful, but he's not all-powerful. He's a bit like a, a chess grandmaster making his moves well ahead of the opposition, but he isn't all-powerful. He's doing his best, but sometimes there are things that he can't control. Now, I can see the appeal of this position. Right? As, as Christians, the issue of suffering creates a tension, as I said before, because we believe in a God who is both good and powerful. So maybe if we reduce the God's power a bit, we can solve the dilemma and still be able to uphold God's goodness. But that's a shortcut solution and it has no warrant in the Bible, which clearly does affirm the sovereignty and the power of God. And what's more, this approach ultimately leads us to a dead end because what we're left with 
is that we are now stuck with suffering and pain, but with a God who is ultimately powerless to help us. If God isn't fully in control now, then how can you be confident that he'll make it right in the end? Now, Job 1 to 2 shows us that God is in control of everything that happens. Even Satan can't act independently of him. Um, He can do nothing unless God allows him to do it. That creates further difficulties for us because if God is good and loving, why does he give these permissions to Satan? Why does he allow bad things to happen? That question is not answered here. But we will get further pointers on it later in the book of Job. I think we should also note that this situation with Job is is not typical. Job's not your, your average person. The descriptions we have seen show that he's exemplary, the standout godly person in the whole region. Uh, One commentator I read said that he's the most godly person in the Bible, apart from Jesus, in the way that he's described. So this is likely an unusual and abnormal set of circumstances. We certainly shouldn't automatically jump to the conclusion that if I am suffering, it's Satan doing it to me. For the moment in Job, I think we just need to sit with the tension, affirming that God is good and loving, God is absolutely sovereign, and yet suffering is real. Alongside these sermons in Job, I'm going to do some St. John's extra videos, which will come out midweek, wrestling more with the problem of suffering. It still won't answer all of our questions, but I hope that it'll help us as we think about these very complex issues. Finally, these chapters give us Job as a model for us in our own sufferings. We see here that although he's racked by grief and pain, Job doesn't abandon God. He doesn't understand what's happening to him or why it's happening but he refuses to let go of God in the midst of his pain. That won't stop Job boldly crying out to God and telling God exactly what he thinks. We'll look at that in more detail in a couple of weeks' time. But in all this, Job is a model for us that whatever we're going through, we need to keep wrestling with God. We need to keep talking to God. We need to keep telling God how much we're hurting. That's what Janet and Khalil did as they wept each night but kept calling out to God amidst the pain. That's what Faye did when she said, I don't understand, but I'm choosing to keep trusting God. We must not abandon God in the midst of our suffering. He is our hope even in the midst of those dark valleys. He is with us and even if we're shouting weeping and saying, we don't understand. He's big enough and he's powerful enough to take it. And he's loving and kind enough to uphold us in the midst of it. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for St. John's Diamond Creek.